Transplaner RPG is proudly sponsored by at Dimitri Opines on Twitter. That is at D-M-I-T-R-Y-O-P-I-N-E-S. And Explain Trade, a negotiation skills training consultancy believing in the power of D&D and Transplaner's potential to grow, tell great stories, and lift up our community. Explain Trade trains negotiators for governments, big companies, NGOs, and offers e-learning courses for individuals looking to get a better deal from their boss. Level up your charisma score and check out explaintrade.com. Hey there, thank you for tuning in to Trans Planar RPG. We are an all transgender, people of color led, 100% homebrew, Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition live streamed actual play campaign set in an original non colonial anti orientalist world. I am your game master, Connie, my pronouns are they, he, and she, and my cast is as follows. C. Thomas plays Oka Hien, an Osamar Bloodhunter. Max Guo plays Dewey Quirk, an Aarakocra Artificer. Erica Flaidlin plays V. Scherzo, an Elf Sorcerer. Valiant Dorian plays Vasca, a Yuanti Bard. Hamna Shahid plays Jaron Cotter, a Dragonborn Rogue. Dare Hickman plays Gentle, a Triton Monk. Quinn B. Rodriguez plays Sitlali, a Changeling Cleric. And Austin Knight plays Abiku Ishtar, a Reborn Goliath Ranger. So, with that out of the way, here are the content warnings for this episode. Content warnings for this episode include war, displacement, a refugee crisis, romance, flirting, references to sexual entanglements, death of loved ones, grief, trauma, blood and bloodletting, and destructive sound effects. Arc 6 Interlude God is the sound of a promise breaking. From time-lapse video of a trans woman collapsing inward like a dying star by J. Jennifer Espinoza. One year ago, the stars vanished, the gods disappeared, and the world ended. Monsters came, homes were lost, lives destroyed. For eight dark months, a paroxysm of fear seized Andake. Magical catastrophes devastated the realms. A rage in Talmud, an undeath in the court. A carnival in Nabal, an unspooling in Moroz, a storm in Uhanahi, a herd in Kirtal, a stagnation in Jukai. But even so, at the bottom of a well, there is always hope. The paragons came, broken like the rest of us, chosen by a destiny they never asked for, and yet, they came. An alliance between the eight nations was formed. Keepers began to emerge, spoken into existence by the shattered gods that still remained. They brought hope back, and with that hope came a star. A single star glimmers in the night sky, the only point of light across infinite darkness. Night and day, it shines, immutable and perfect, a beacon of hope in a ravaged realm. All across Andake, people pack bags, pile into caravans, turn their eyes skyward toward that star. And just like that, 
the great pilgrimage begins. In too long, we see a rabbit folk person, gray coat flecked with golden browns and reds, wrapping black linens around his feet. He pulls on black leather armor, shoulders a shield, straps a long sword to his back. And as a finishing touch, he puts on a necklace, the holy symbol of Mengshen Zhidi gleaming against his furred torso. He snatches a quarterstaff off a rack and shoulders open a wooden door to his humble abode in the silent grove. There, he joins a convoy of riders moving through his forested village, all heading north toward that star. In Nabal, we see a pale-skinned Kaloshtar woman with purple eyes and cloudy white hair swept up into a long ponytail. Red tattoos gleam on her arms, each symbol representing a different step on the path of her life. Barefoot, she rushes to the water's edge at Bacchanalia Beach, joining a throng of a half thousand people clamoring for seats on the next ferry north. And in Talmud, hiking across the badlands alongside every sellsword, monster hunter, and degenerate of Ujval, we find a pink-skinned tiefling in denim overalls striding next to a dark-skinned elven man pushing his own wheelchair along. Dalapathy Saeed holds out a hand, and his husband Kathor takes it, and together they travel eastward toward the chasm. And now we sweep past the rugged red rock of the Badlands to find an ocean of tents, yurts, gurs, shacks, bedrolls, bonfires, wagons, caravans, thousands and thousands and thousands of people camping the area underneath the star. Encampments sprawl for miles all around the chasm on Talmud's side, on Kirtal's side, toward the north by Moroz, toward the south by the Godspine. The people of Andake are hungry. They are desperate. They need hope. They need to see that star for themselves. They demand answers. And the Alliance dutifully obliges. Forming a strict perimeter around the area directly underneath the star is a massive military camp. A slanted stone wall, 20 feet tall, broken up by guard towers and parapets, encloses a semicircle of land at the edge of the Euclid Chasm. Populating this camp are Kyrian cavalry, Tulongan infantry, court magicians, Nabalian heroes, Nitbuzan archivists, Talmadi statespeople, Uhanian sailors, Yukon hunters, top talent from every nation all across Andake. Recruitment tents pepper the base of these walls, eager civilians stepping forward to join this effort to protect Andake. Otherwise, the regular folk of Andake are kept at bay, both to preserve the focus of the camp and for their own protection. And striding through this camp, barking orders, we see Toktoa Kagan, a human woman, her straight black hair pulled back into a no-nonsense low ponytail. These two wisps frame her sharp, angular face. She's wearing this padded leather armor, her sharp brown eyes cutting through this organized chaos. Strapped to her back is a glowing bow. 
golden and radiant, shining with the warmth of Galtanger herself. Sunshot. The Keeper of Galtanger, as she also now calls herself, nods across the camp in the direction of a young Fearbog woman. Princess Naua Kekoa. Hibiscus flowers adorn her dark, wavy brown hair. Piercings glimmer across her face like miniature stars, septum bridge, lips, ears, eyebrows. Decorating every inch of her light brown skin are also thick black tattoos done in a traditional Uhanian style. She nods across the camp back at Toktoa, then goes back to conferring with the paragon of Mahu, Manaya Wairua, a tall half-orc woman in a short black coat. Also in this camp, we find a dark-skinned human man with long black braids threaded down his back and striking inquisitive eyes. Duke Root Sweetbreeze of the Fall Court of Ravens is attending the stables. Druidic magic threads out of his fingers and into the manes of war horses, imbuing them with strength, courage, intelligence and past the stables, sitting in front of a bonfire, a singular spot of calm amidst this hustle and bustle, we find an older human woman. Her long white hair hangs freely down her back, no longer schooled into a bun. A wooden cane leans against her hip, and her wrinkled eyes are closed as she sips at a cup of tea. Also in attendance here is, of course, Old Mama Lightning, Dovrenye Litso, the paragon of Yudabathi. Outside a large tent nearby, we find two tieflings. One of them is the color of snow, soft and round, her dewy eyes a pure, undiluted pink. White horns extend from her forehead and connect at the very top to form a circle. A tail peeks out from behind long, elegant, sweeping robes topped with a little poof, a little white fluff. Uh, that tail is currently flicking in mild, restrained annoyance as the other tiefling smirks at Halo. Midnight blue, perfect skin, wavy dark hair, pure silver eyes comprise cane. They wear loose draping robes as always, their top surgery scars exposed for all to see. Golden rings adorn their horns and tail, and they're currently teasing Halo about a certain Asimar. Thankfully for Halo, the tent flap they're standing in front of ripples, and out comes a tall human person in her early 50s. His beauty is holy and divine. Their features look chiseled from a block of still marble. One of their eyes has a single pupil, and the other has three. Emperor Zhen of Xiong, the paragon of Mengshen Jirdi, inclines their regal head in Cain's direction. They make a gentle yet firm excuse to pull Halo away, referring to her as their keeper. And with that, Halo and Seongjin are off. And finally, at the eastern edge of this camp, before the walls slope off and descend into the chasm, we find Dr. Aluso's homestead. This 
cottage is the point directly underneath the star. Its barn, its garden, its training ground, even its chicken coop are overrun by soldiers of the Alliance erecting tents, building fires, practicing archery, hustling, bustling, hustling, bustling, and standing on the roof atop Dr. Aluso's cottage, overseeing everything in the beating of this war camp. Is Squeak. Pick up your feet there, soldier! This is war time, not snore time! And you, Captain What's-Your-Name, I want you on stable boy duty, humble yourself! As for you, bring me a glass of lemonade, I'm thirsty. Uh, uh, don't forget who set up this camp in the first place while Dr. Alusha was gone! Me! When I say jump, you say... And then a bunch of soldiers reply really sadly, How tall? That's right! <laughs> That's right! Oh, wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. They're back! They're here! Vosgods, Lolly, Mercy, Dewey, Oka, Doctor, Awusho, your friends! They're coming home! And on that, we pull to a teleportation dais between the barn and the cottage. The sigils etched along this stone glow, pulse, shine. A pillar of light erupts upward, and then materializing, ribboning, lacing into existence, we see a Biku, Gentle, Vasanti, Jaron, Costas, and Rev. Let's start with a Biku. Who are you, and how have you changed since the last time you were at the homestead? Uh, it's me, a Biku girl. A Biku, uh, as we know from finale, has orange eyes now. New color scheme, new black and gold color scheme. Uh, sick, <laughs> sick raven back tattoo. <laughs> I said back tattoo three times. Sick Raven back tattoo. And still seems like, you, you know, but more confident in the fact that she's like, you know, doing her best. And she's carrying a cannon. Yep. Like a full on massive ancient looking heavy iron cannon. And Abiku, as like the light from the teleportation dais starts to filter down, I think you, the first person you see in the crowd that's suddenly all around you, like this homestead is popping up, there are people everywhere. But the first person your orange eyes settle on is Voska. Voska, who are you and how have you changed since the last time you've been here? Voska, our paragon abuser has changed quite a bit since the last time everyone has seen her. She has longer hair now. Uh, the sides and back were recently shaved by Oka and maintained at the length, but the top of her hair kind of falls in these uh, wild waves on onto the side of her face. And it becomes even more apparent how long it is as it falls upon her face in flustered motions as she is surrounded by all of these people bewildered by the increase of populace as of recently. Uh, she has her left arm supporting her lower back and is tapping her thigh with her black foot that she taps against her thigh nervously 
kind of looking over at Oka, her distinct eyes of blue, icy blue and fog gray panning around at the new environments, hoping for some type of answer. Oh, so Squeak is on the roof? Yeah, she's she's a little tyrant on the roof, exactly. I love that. I think that's what you see, Abiku. You see Vosco looking different, her hair is longer. She looks flustered with all these people crowding around her. But I think the next person that we focus on on the day is ribbiting into existence is Gentle. Who are you and uh, how have you changed? Um, Gentle, I think honestly looks a little, uh, a little confident. Things were, things were going pretty well for Gentle. Uh, Bud, uh, right by uh, their side. Uh, I think Gentle's first action is sort of taking account of how many people are around. And you just see Gentle like quietly like put just something in their ear and take like a deep breath to center themselves and they're okay. They just rub the top of Bud's head and just sort of kind of take note of the fact Squeak's on the roof and that's weird. But yeah, they begin to look for their friends. Yeah, as Bud's soft yet prickly fur nuzzles against your hand and your eyes slide off of the little monarch on the roof down into the crowd, I think the first person you see, the first friend you find is Sitlali in the midst of everything. So Sitlali, who are you and what's different about you? What could possibly be different about Sitlali? Um, where do we start? Where do we start? Sitlali? is six feet tall again. The sides of their hair both shaved, the top part a long mane, longer than you remember it, gentle. And the pastels seem brighter, more vibrant almost. Black lips surrounded by a manicured pastel stubble beard. And they are wearing pants and a crop top fashioned from what used to be their dress along with their armor and the robe, per usual. The Vinash scars are still there. Maybe when you get a little closer, you'll see what's on her chest. But from here, you can see almost like alcohol ink shifting across her body. Stars? A star map of Ndake, even? What's up with that? Weird. What is up with that indeed, Silali, as you're surrounded by this crush of people milling around you? We pan back to the dais and we see sparking into existence motes of golden teleportation dust flicking off of her shoulders. Vasanti, who are you and what's changed with you? Vasanti is this elf sorceress who's got uh, all of her like gear that she normally has for her paragon gear is off right now and tucked into her explorer's pack. The most immediate thing you see is that she's nursing a broken left hand. She kind of is holding it the way, like, protectively against her torso, and she just, it never seems to leave right there. Uh, she's gotten used to for a while holding this. Uh, there's a cast on it. And for those of you who know Vasanti, first off, it's Vasanti now. There is a clear, distinct difference in how she's caring about herself. Whereas V was confident and would just run into things, uh, Vasanti looks very scared, especially to like teleport into this giant sea of people in every direction. I think Vasanti is just immediately going towards the rest of her group that she's teleporting in with, and particularly once Rev is in there, she's like attached to Rev by the hip, and is just 
uh, a mixture of scared as well as uh, fascinated by everything that's going around right now, but she doesn't know how to interact with this world right now. And that's about it. That's how she looks. She's just scanning everybody for familiar faces right now. Mm, totally. Yeah. As your mismatched gaze, I think, scans this crowd, they find someone familiar. Dewey, who are you and what's changed about you as you're milling in this space? Uh, Dewey's still the silly little pigeon man, you remember. Uh, he's sort of dodging in between people carrying, soldiers carrying items back and forth. He just narrowly misses getting hit by um, planks of wood and like people moving armaments. Um, he's got his long paragon robe. Uh, he's pulled it up, the ends up, and tied it around his waist because they keep getting stepped on. And he's still got his cargo shorts uh, to everyone's dismay. Um, and he's standing, I think he's standing underneath the roof, just looking up at Squeak, uh, terrified that she's going to fall. <laughs> That's hilarious. I think like immediately, like so many of you look up at Squeak as the first thing. I love that. And Dewey, as you're also looking up at Squeak, we're going to pan back to the dais to find our final person that we're going to focus on, Jeron. Who are you and what's changed about you? I think, honestly, when Jaron comes up on the dais, it's not even him that your eyes directly go towards because they're carrying this giant tube on their back. And that is the tube in which the tapestry of Moreau's has been rolled up into. And so they're kind of just like um, handling the straps as they come in because I imagine the teleporting is still not something that they're fully used to. So I think they kind of like stumble a little bit and in it have like jostled the, the carrier bit. And so they're kind of holding on to that. The main thing that's different about the way that Jaron looks is that, well, firstly, their whole countenance, their whole sort of aura, I guess, is a lot more cautious than it used to be. It's Their presence is a lot quieter and a lot less here and in your face than it used to be. And beyond that, their horns are broken, all except one of them. And you can see that as they kind of like have their hood pulled down, their hair in a ponytail, you can see that every single one of their horns except for one is completely shattered. And as they're um, trying to keep this tapestry on their back, this hand loom uh, under their arm, like from falling out, they kind of like look out into the crowd. Jaron, as you scan the crowd, I think your eyes fall upon the final person here, Oka. Oka, who are you and how have you changed since the last time you were here? That is a big, big question. And I think the change is in fact so drastic that it's not Oka who Jaron finds first, it's Kane who's reaching up and touching the face of, who is that? Is that, holy fuck. A person with slate gray skin, scars, yes, a sword tattooed down their arm. But this person has long, long black hair, shaved on the sides, braided into a, this like tight braid that nearly touches the ground. These black and blue robes etched through with depictions of rabbits and foxes and elk etched up these beautiful robes that are some kind of tessellation of darkness and thread who also wears silver plated bone across their chest somewhere between a corset and a breastplate 
forming this window with the black cloth underneath to reveal a perfect collapse of scar tissue at the center of their chest, bright scarring under their pectoral muscles, and four white, feathery, gigantic wings. Four of them, two on each side, two smaller ones that kind of come out of the underside of their ribs, and above their head, behind them, as they're still kind of turned towards Cain, Oka has a halo. And by a halo, I mean eight halos of blood, liquid blood, that turn in these clock-like work wheels behind their head, constantly moving, constantly shifting, eight concentric circles that are always changing. And Oka kind of looks at Kane. the two of them smile at each other, Kane lifts a hand up, I think, to cup their face, and then Oka turns, and in one eye they have blue eyes with blue sclera, and two pupils in each eye, and in the other, it's a silver eye, a familiar silver eye. Is that Kane's eye? And they blink, and their eye changes. And every time they blink, their eye turns different. A lizard's eye, a cat's eye, somebody else's eye, always looking back at you. <sighs> wow, that was gay! Uh, yeah, so... Jaron, that's who you see. I think Kane cupping the side of Oka's face, and I think leading up to kiss them. And when Kane's where it comes back down, uh... Oka, you feel a strong nudge at your back, and a familiar, kind of husky, brusque voice go, Hey! Looks like they're back! Zilali! Get your ass over here! And Mercy, this half-orc woman with this long, kind of crimson hair done up in a ponytail, this bristling muscle, all leather armor, massive greatsword, javelin strapped to her waist, starts to stride forward and I think reaches out to like grab uh, at your wrist, Oka, to pull you forward toward the dais. And Oka lets themselves get dragged along for approximately two seconds, I think before they actually break out of Mercy's grasp to run forward all like their wings hit like several people on the way forward and it is very clear that they are not used to having them out all the time uh, and they like bash somebody carrying a big plank of wood like in the back fully and they go oh fuck sorry uh uh as they like run up to the dais I think the person like Ugh, like lunges forward and a couple of piles of wood pop out and almost hit the ground but then bing, they glow ensconced by blue light as Dr. Aluso raises a hand and they like gently levitate the piles of logs back into their grasp. And as we pan over and glance at Dr. Aluso, we see they're no longer in their white lab coat. They're wearing a sleeveless black turtleneck uh, that is tucked into their trousers and they've got boots on as well. Uh, and their hair is brown is this deep, dark brown fully, and so are their eyes. They're no longer blonde and blue-eyed. Uh, and Dr. Luz just sort of smiles at you, Oka, and says, go. And Oka, you charge forward. What do you do next? They take the steps of the dais two at a time, at least, uh, and they crash into Jaron in the biggest hug possible, like, like crushing him against them. I don't think Jaron has the arms at the moment to hug back. They're holding so many things, so many very large, very important things. And 
I don't think it has fully like processed for Jaron that this is Oka. Like, yes, this is Oka. Clearly this is Oka, but is this Oka? And so he's just kind of like there, like kind of frozen, not really sure what to do. And he just looks at you, Oka, and uh, Oka? What the fuck happened to your horns as Oka like pulls away? What the fuck happened to you? God stole my clothes. Someone who wanted to be a god stole my horns. I, uh... And they just pull you back into, like, another hug. And I think this time, John kind of, like, readjusts a little bit and, like, tries to give Oka a hug back. And they, like, squeeze really tightly, I think, into Oka. Um... A little awkwardly, I think, because they're also not sure where to put their hands with the new four-wing situation going on. And they kind of, like, whisper into Oka's ear um, as they're hugging. I've missed you. I missed you, too. We have a lot to talk about. Yeah, yeah, clearly we do. I guess the whole Paragon thing worked out then, did it? You could say that. And Oka smiles. It's not like a smirk. It's not sarcastic. It doesn't even look like the kind of grimace smiles they've tried to do in the past, like where they're trying to smile. They smile, truly. Maybe for the first time that you've ever seen. I'm glad that it worked out for you. I really am. I mean that. And Jaron does. They do mean that. I think they wouldn't have a moment ago. I think when they asked that question of whether or not the Paragon thing worked out, it was still laced with this idea that that's not what should have happened. But seeing Oka smile like that so genuinely for the first time, he genuinely means it. And Oka kind of keeps this small smile on their face and turns to Gentle. I, I like the wings. Thanks. I was hoping you would. Uh, and they pull Gentle into another crushing hug. Gentle will reciprocate. So, um, how's things been going on your side of everything? Well, uh, and Oka turns kind of down the dais to look for Sitlali. I think Sitlali has a new cane that is adjustable, thanks Dewey, because we love a tall monarch, but sometimes a small monarch, you know? Um, and Sitlali is just kind of like has stopped at the foot of the dais and is just kind of like staring at Gentle and then when attention is brought to them she just kind of turns and looks in a random direction and looks very interested in whatever a random seller is selling um, and then looks back very casually uh, and is like oh hey and then comes up the uh stairs uh hi um you look great by the way um also you're taller getting still like not as tall as me but like mostly there got some stuff back that i had lost oh like gentle smiles incredibly genuinely at that good um yeah uh bud and i are doing pretty okay fought a dragon uh solved the mystery with like dragon killing poison that was kind of fun it's been pretty all right we bonded over attempted murder 
It's but okay. We're getting there. Can I have a hug? Oh, of course. I'm sorry. And gentle, of course, gives Sitlali a hug. Gentle! It's good to see you. And Mercy strides forward and, like, claps a big ol' hand on your shoulder. I think, like, Gentle is thrown off a little by it, but has, like, enough time to react and not completely, like, just faceplant. <laughs> uh, just being thrown off by it. Uh, hi, Mercy. Um, how are you? Uh, I'm doing well. Actually, you know what? Uh, I'm feeling actualized. I'm feeling really realized. Yeah, being stuck in a shattered time loop over and over and over again where you're forced to grapple with your worst failures really tends to do that to a person. Oh. Babe, hey, we, we can we can talk about that later. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, you you look great, gentle. I'm glad you're holding up and representing the hounds up in Moreau's. Um, hi, Jeron. Hey, Mercy. I thought the Dream Shield was supposed to help us grapple with our worst failures. Uh, don't you know you're supposed to go to therapy more than one time? I suppose I didn't know that, no. How's unemployment treating you? Mercy. Mercy. Well, I mean it genuinely. I don't mean Mercy. it as a dig. I mean it genuinely, Oka. Pretty good, actually. Being back home was nice. What the fuck happened to your face? Mercy. <laughs> what? Oh, so, am I not allowed to point out the obvious? Like, you have to not ignore? Like that. No. It's a gift from uh, Vasanti's father, actually. Oh, shit. And I think, uh, speaking of Vasanti and her father, uh, we find, I think, while this scene's been happening, Vasanti, where do you find yourself gravitating toward? I think she would just, she finds Dewey, I think, would be, like, one of the nearest people that uh, she sees. And she would, uh, in a very, I think, a very surprising display of emotion from where Dewey's perspective is, Vasanti literally, like, not runs, but kind of, like, almost gallops over and with her good arm, like, wraps it around Dewey as she, like, sort of crouches down and then, like, more gently takes the broken arm and, like, kind of puts it behind and just gives Dewey like the biggest squeeze and Dewey you might even feel like a little bit of tears falling on your shoulder a little bit how how have you been uh, the, the laughter it's hard to tell now uh, laughter and cries are kind of like mingle after that sent after that question uh, it's uh, I've, I've had a I've had a rough couple weeks Dewey um, how, how are you doing friend uh Fine. Uh, did you get to talk to your? Did you get to work things out with the dad? Uh, let's just say that. Um, yes, I met my father. Yes, he's an asshole, and uh, we won't be hearing from him anymore. I guess that's. C congrats. Uh, what? What happened to your arm? Oh my gosh. Um. Yeah, that's uh, a gift from my father. So. Um, he sounds so generous. Yeah, actually, um, about this, uh, you think I need a little bit of help, do we? Yeah, for sure. I'm. I just did a thing for Jerron. I hope he's taking good care of that. Uh, it's it's gonna be great. Yeah, um, it's really good to see you. Yeah, um, yeah. We'll we'll talk about this later. Uh, do you know anything about like the weave not going through arms or body parts anymore when uh, it's broken? 
and I think on Dewey's like stunned silence, we gonna we're gonna cut back to the dais uh, upon the Hound's reunion. And I think uh, upon hearing the talk about Vasanti's father, Oka kind of like gets this focused look, sees Vasanti running in the opposite direction, kind of like touches Jaron's shoulder very quickly. I'll be right back. Uh, and they like peel away. And Jaron kind of like turns over uh, towards Sitlali and who they haven't really acknowledged yet, I think, because when they look at Sitlali, I think like their face flushes a little bit. And when there's like, a clear like beat in the conversation between Gentle and Sitlali. He uh, walks up. Sitlali, uh, you uh, you look good. Thanks. What uh, what exactly happened? You got your magic back, clearly. Yes. Um, keeper of Sin. Keeper of who? Sin. Wow. Wow. I. Wasn't expecting that, but congratulations, I think. I think, I think it's, yeah, it's complicated. Um, I mean, and it isn't at the same time, but, um, and they kind of tuck their hair like awkwardly behind one ear. Did you get my last letter before we went in? Yeah, yeah. And I think Jaron kind of goes to like put like an arm behind their head, but then realizes they're holding the hand loom and can't do it appropriately. So it just looks very awkward as they're like, oh, no, gonna put that back. Um, yeah, I did. Honestly, I was really worried when we weren't able to contact any of you. What happened? Mercy said something about being stuck in a time loop. And I think Salali sighs and is like, Maybe over some tea, we can talk about the everything. Uh, and I think they kind of absentmindedly uh, rub at their chest and you are now, both of you, close enough to notice, uh, Gentle and Jaron, the, um, there are three tattoos, question mark, of marigolds in full bloom that kind of stem out from some of the lines of the Vinash scars. Jaron kind of like reaches out and doesn't touch Sitlali, but just like traces a marigold in the air. That's new. And I think Sitlali takes a step forward so that Jaron does touch there. And on that point of contact from Jaron toward a keeper, we're going to pan over to another keeper in this space. Abiku, where do we find you attracted to? Uh, Abiku is walking with, uh, Kanan in one arm and, and, uh, Kassus in the other one towards Vasca. Wait, like, <laughs> like they're a child under your arm? No, they're, they want to know. So they're, they're, they're trying to scan for, for Vasca in the crowd. There's so many people. Okay, I'm into it. Kassus is riding your shoulders and for the first time in public, Kassus's hood is down. They're like showing their face, this like dark skin on one side with this like braided black hair and this like pure bluish whitish like ice on the other. This like elf looking around. Uh, Vasca, Vasca, Vasca. Hey, 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 Vasca, hey. And Costas starts waving really big when they see you. I think Vasca was just kind of like, well, I had friends here and now they're gone. Uh, and <laughs> turns around and sees her friends from so long ago. And I think like, I, I still think for the first time for Abiku and Costas, there's this maybe a little 
girlish, like, huge wave that comes from Vasca as she shoves her flute back into her side uh, belt and rushes to meet Abiku and Costas. Costas is still on top of Abiku, right? Uh, and just jumps into a hug towards Abiku. I dropped the cannon. <laughs> <laughs> There's like a boom, and it like shakes the ground, and several vendor stalls go clatter, 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 right? <laughs> they go, whoa! Uh, and the two of you collide into each other. Uh, oh, like, yeah, Vasca just gives you a big hug and then looks up at Costas and goes, What are you doing up there? Come back down here. V- Vasca and like Costas climbs down you like a cat getting down a tree, which is to say ungracefully, they just sort of fall. <laughs> they fall like the full eight feet and hit the ground. They scramble up. Vasca, you look your hair. You're uh, you um you look happier. I was going to say hot again, but happier is a good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's a sh- you can't just say what? someone's Why? hotter. Why? I don't know. Well, I mean, I mean, she she is hot and has always been. Are you laughing, Bosco? Are you are you like genuinely <laughs> laughing? Yes, I miss you both so much. It just kind of like wraps her arms around the two of them. I and... don't remember your hair growing this fast. I could be wrong though. I didn't keep track of how fast your hair grew. Um, and Bosco like slightly pulls away, but still has her arms around the two of them. We, um, were stuck in time, in the stagnation, um, and then time caught up, and it was a year's worth of time that caught up. Um, Oka, and I think as she says Oka's name and, and like, physics, Oka made it look a little bit more presentable. I, I think it looks good, I just, now we know. Mahu's um, spicy tits. That's whoa. I just yeah. look at. Oh, so you can say that, but I can't say Vasco got up. But I'm not just. And like Costas, like their you know the skin side of their face flushes a little bit. Uh, I think Vasco like looks at the both of them and goes, "Did you did you receive my missives?" Yes, and I take the sa- the sashes like around my waist. Uh, Yes, I sent a few birds and then they came back. And so then I stopped trying to send birds because I assumed you were like, I I didn't think trapped in time. I thought in ice or like you had perished or like, you know, like something normal. (laughs) Um, No, certainly that would be the more normal occurrence. But it seems that with the Paragons, um, we will find the strangest aspect to be a part of this so much I need to tell you all. How how goes our home? How goes Moroz? Uh, oh, it's okay. There was a dragon uh, mage. Uh, I knew him. He started the war. Not this war, or the last war. The, the, like a long... The a thousand war. year war. Like 10,000 years ago. Yes. He, this dude was like 15,000 years old. Yes, he he uh, he killed my my wife. Um, you're you're right. Oh, yes, I remember her now. Here, come sit. I will tell um, you, but she was the. <laughs> I think, like, Vasca, like, sits cross-legged, like, on the ground somewhere, like, away from all of these people. Uh, uh, it's just another Abiku sat down. It doesn't Abiku sat down. 
She sits like on the cannon and taps the cannon for story. Time. Oh my god. Okay, yep. Mosca sits by you at the bottom of the cannon. I love that. And I think like on the three of you sitting and like Costas leaning into a beacon being like, I do think we should double check to make sure this is actually Vasca though, because I don't know if I've ever seen them this happy, like ever in their life before, ever. Um, I could ask them if they know what your birthmark is. That's true. Hey, Vasca, remember when we were all kind of, you know, uh, you all, I mean, you and Abiku were naked in a hot spring, but I missed that. Well, speaking of bodies being naked, and we're going to cut away from that transition uh, back to Strike Team B with Oka approaching Vasanti and Dewey. Oka is cutting through the crowd, still kind of, I think they have just at this point picked their wings like up as high as they possibly can, which makes them look a little intimidating. So I think people are getting out of their way pretty fast as they're making a beeline over towards Vasanti and Dewey. And I think they just kind of call out, hey, V, did you finally take care of that piece of shit X of yours? Oh my gosh, uh, Vasanti just fucking loses her shit and starts crying so fucking hard. Oh, she just becomes like a mess on the ground. She just like literally melts off of Dewey and just like head in knees, just bawling her fucking head off of that question. Dewey, two seconds too late, does like the hand across the throat like, eh, no, don't, well, Oka pauses, stands there. Uh oh. And they kind of very cautiously approach and kneel down. Last time I saw you cry this hard, it was after we saw Sievert for the first time. And it was, well. And they just kind of put a hand on her back. Um, I think Vasanti sort of like uh, reaches over and like. Uh, kind of buries her head, but not quite into Oka's shoulders. Like, Vasanti doesn't even see the changes in Oka at this point. It's just uh, through these streams of tears. Oh god, Sievert, he was actually a really good person this whole time. Don't... He... what? Uh -huh. <laughs> he... he was protecting me this whole time. Just... Protecting you from what? <laughs> from my father. My father's been trying to kill me this whole time, my whole life. And Oka just takes that in. And I think very quietly, they fold one of their wings over Vasanti's shoulder uh, and kind of like almost pull her in with it. And the ground by their feet begins to, like the snow around their feet begins to melt. And these little like springs of new growth, like kind of come up and almost like crawl up Oka's legs and then turn orange, wither, and die as Oka casts uh, Healing Hands. Not because you're hurt, but because you're hurting. As I think this kind of like glow starts to, to suffuse you as Oka just kind of sits there with you and you can hear this almost like whirring as one of those halos kind of like clicks into place behind their head. And Vasanti feels all of this uh, entering into her. It's this sort of this warmth and it just feels so calming, and she feels her heart slowly calming, and she just feels her breath coming, and she's like, all of a sudden she's like more present. She just feels herself on the ground next to Oka with this angel wing in it. This is the first time Vasanti like looks at this, and then like looks back at Oka and like sees, oh my gosh, Oka, you, you're, you've changed. Yeah. 
Yeah, it hurt like a bitch, but um, change does. And Oka blinks, and the next time that they blink, there is a Kelly green eye in one of their eyes, just for a split second. And they blink again. And I think um, in that moment, Vasanti sort of cuddles a little bit harder against Oka. I've missed you so much. I tried to write letters and they kept coming back. And also, can you call me Vasanti from now on only? Yeah, whatever you want. Sorry about the letters. It was a, uh, I hope Dewey fills you in. Time, broken time. Uh, I missed you too. Dewey, could you please come over here? Uh, and Oka extends their other arm for another hug. Well, group hug time. I miss this. You don't have to say it like such a dad. It's embarrassing. I think that makes uh, Vasanti laugh enough that like she's feeling like a lot more, like a breath of fresh air. She probably hasn't laughed from something in days, weeks, and it just feels really good to like feel home with Oka and Dewey right now. Mm. And I think as the three of you hug, there's like a moment where it's just the three of you. And then, like, two big, strong arms come up from behind Visanti and, like, hug as well as, like, Rev joins the group hug. And actually, she, like, picks up the three of you, like, crunching your wings, all four of them, in against your back, like, crumpling them and up off the ground. Oh, Oka, Dewey, too. I've missed the two of you. And then she drops, Rev, drops the three of you. do you really need to do that? Of course I do. Looks like I'm not the only one with feathers attached to my aesthetic. I, that's, we've always shared, okay? Yeah, but these seem semi-permanent. Good job. And that halo? Very nice. Thanks. I keep telling people that God stole my clothes, and that is what happened. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea where my old armor went after I became Paragon. It's just gone. Uh, can I, I get it back somewhere? I know, right? Well, it had I mean... sentimental value. My vest? That I had that nice stash for that a long time. That was a nice vest. Dewey, your shorts, I wish. I lost my, my favorite. Them. I admit, lost my favorite pair of cargo shorts. Don't. Oh my god. Yeah, but these are an upgrade, Dewey. Let's be real. Like, these are top of the line. God, shorts. These are Please don't my give him any ideas. <laughs> Dewey, I've missed you too. I can't lie. I did, um, it's nice to see you again. Same. Uh, it's Mercy did all the bullying for you uh, while while you were away. So yeah, you seem to have a thing about being bullied by huge muscular women. Uh. Hey, don't knock it till you try, it. <laughs> Oka, I like the hair. Maybe I should do you a favor and braid it for you, style it for you. You could try. Grows back overnight. Oh. Got it. And I think like we, we pan away from this conversation back to the totally just buds squad uh, with Jerron, <laughs> Gentle, and Sitlali. And as Jerron has, I think, fingers touching Sitlali's chest where the marigolds are, Gentle, you're witnessing all of this. You feel something tugging at you, similar to the tugging you felt toward the star back in the Iron Citadel that compelled you to go out onto the balcony and witness 
you feel that similar kind of like story thread tugging, yanking you in the direction of the tapestry, I think, that is currently uh, in the tube born on Jaron's body. And it's almost like you feel this invisible thread linking you to that tapestry. And I think your eyes are just like, something else compels you to turn and look as a, a second invisible thread seems to connect that tapestry tube all the way out past the crowd toward where Dr. Eluso is currently standing, talking to Squeak. Uh, I don't want to interrupt. Um, do either of you see that? Uh, see what? I, a little, like, like a little thread? It's like leading to Dr. O. Um, I, no. Okay. Um, it's nothing then. Um, I, I'm gonna go, I might go talk to Dr. O, actually, and just go, like, check on them. I think Salali kind of reaches out and just, like, traces the weave with one finger just to, like, check on it. Um, and I mm. think it kind of lights up, like, a couple of colors when she does. Yeah, I guess go check in with Dr. O. And but... please tell them to get Squeak off of the roof. I don't. I mean... I don't it's think kind there's of, it's, any it's kind of funny. squeak off Yeah, but she's kind of she's kind of yelling at everybody and it's freaking some people out. True, 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 true. Um, I think she's kind of earned it. Has she? I get that feeling. Well We can um, agree to disagree on that maybe. I uh so Holly, I I really do want to catch up later, uh especially because I did get your letter and it's I got your letter. Um but I, I, I'll see you in a little bit. And Gentle just like about faces and walks away. Yeah, see you in a little bit. That's, mm -hmm. <laughs> And I think we followed Gentle turning around and striding toward Dr. Eluso, yes? Absolutely. They are sort of standing at the base of their cottage, like, huh. A puzzled look coming over their face as they're kind of shouting up at Squeak, who's on the roof. Uh, and Squeak is in the middle of talking to Dr. Elusa, but also shouting orders. Being like, it's so great to see you again, Hitsagaton. Uh, oh, one second. How many times do I have to tell you the chickens are off limits? Scram! Anyway, I've been going to therapy. Uh, and Gentle, you arrive on that, and Dr. Elusa turns to face you. Uh, Gentle, it's so good to see you again. Hi, Doctor. Oh, how are? You? First off, I like the, I like the new outfit. Um, also, do you want like a ride up there to go talk to Squeak? Oh um, no, I can no. just like do that. It's totally fine. I appreciate the offer, and I do know you can fly. Very cool. Uh, but uh, sure. I I'm good. Squeak and I were just catching up. Are Are you all right? Was there um, something you needed from me? So, it's gonna sound a little weird, but there's like a little thread kind of. Like, I can see it's kind of pull, telling me to come talk to you or over to you. Huh. And Dr. Lusso cocks their head. I think a glint goes over their glasses as they squint their eyebrows inquisitively. And they look from you, I think, back toward the area you left, which is Jaron and Sidali still kind of by the dais talking with each other in a totally not gay way. Um, and their eyes, I think, actually linger on that like long tube that Jaron has that the tapestry of the stranger is in. And they like follow back to you. Huh, you know, this is actually a really great coincidence. I was just thinking of asking Jaron if I could see that tapestry. Uh, yeah, that's actually a good idea. Um, 
do you want to go say hi and get it back or I can grab it for you? What what will work easiest for you? Uh, how about this? Jeron, hello. Good to see you again. Sorry about the horns. Can I see that tapestry? Oh, uh, hey, Dr. O. Yeah. Sit, Molly, give me one sec. And Jeron goes over to Dr. O. And as Jeron hustles over, gentle, that feeling only grows. Like, this is the right thread. There's like no other way to tell it. It's like if you're in a good groove of telling a story and like you found the right one to pull on, you found the right threads. If you're in the middle of facilitating perhaps a collaborative improvisational session of role playing amongst friends, you're like, this is the hook that's going to get them. And you find that hook and you pull on it uh, as like Jaron's coming closer. Like something about getting the tapestry here feels right. I think like that feeling it's kind of overwhelming for Gentle, actually. Um, sort of like, kind of taking a minute to just sort of listen and watch things play out for a second before they sort of decide to move. Hey, uh, you wanted the tapestry? I don't really think it's a good idea to put it out here on the ground. Can we go inside or? Oh, no problem. And Dr. Luso sweeps an arm out and creates like a table made of hard light like a floating blue disc. Like that's quite broad, like big enough to seat like eight people at. Do you think that's big enough? Should I make it bigger? That works too. Depending on if the other members of the Alliance want to be here for this. You know what? Um, I'm pretty sure they'll come when I, I've been, there's something I need to just double check first. Do you mind? And they like gesture at you to unravel it across the disc. And Jaron does. And like I, it's very quite heavy. Carefully. Yeah, the tapestry's heavy as hell because it's a huge, it's like a massive rug, right? Those things are heavy, but together you and Dr. Luso and Gentle, if you'd like to pitch in, are able to sort of like unscrew the top of the tube and like lay the tapestry out across the disc. And we see this like long, gorgeous work of art, right? Eight symbols arranged in a powerful circle, each representing a different paragon and their god. A story is depicted, a tale of a desperate battle fought between the paragons and these black and crimson threads that you figure represent the stranger. And of course, at the very bottom of the tapestry, which had been unraveled when you first encountered it, but is now whole, we see the conclusion of this story. The stranger leaves and the realms are devastated because of it. And yet, there is still a grain of hope. That circle of eight paragons remains unbroken. And as you like lay this tapestry out, Dr. Uso looks down and nods and nods. Mm, Right, yes, of course. All right, one moment. And they are going to whisk their hand in a circular motion and a similar like hard light disc appears underneath their feet and sort of elevates them up, uh, like above the crowd so they can get like a good vantage point on the entire camp. All right, let's see. And they look down at the tapestry and then up at the star. Hmm. And then back down at the tapestry and back up at the star. And then they seem to reach a conclusion. Um, everyone. And when they say everyone, their voice is magically amplified. So the entire like camp, the immediate vicinity can hear them. And I think like the murmuring and the hubbub and the chattering and the clucking of the chickens, all of that like dies down as people start to turn their faces toward where Dr. Luso is elevated just underneath the roof of the cottage. Hello. 
Uh, sorry, I don't mean to bother you necessarily, uh, but I do have some important things, I think, to discuss and talk about. If the Paragons, who are all here, and our darling friends, might congregate, anyone else, members of the Alliance, please. And as Dr. Lucy starts, like, talking, people start, like, moving out from, like, the camp generally and approaching this table. And as, like, folks start maneuvering their way out of the crowd, I assume the eight of you as well also start to, like, gather around this table. You, you, like, pick yourselves up from the little copses of friendship that you found amidst this chaos. And eventually, very soon, we see just, like, a small crowd of people gathered here with Dr. Luso sort of, like, elevated on this platform. All right. It's so good to see all of your faces, first of all. It's been so long since... I actually don't think it's ever happened before, uh, where all of us have been gathered here, a representative from every member of the Alliance and all the Paragons. Thank you for being here. Um, so, in the first few hours since I've been back home, uh, I've been able to study that star, uh, and I think, I think I know now that I have this tapestry. Yes, exactly. I think, hmm, I think I know what's going on here. Um, hmm, that star... That's not actually a star in the normal Andokin sense of like a celestial body or a representative of a emissary soul. Uh, it's, um, hmm, it's a hole, uh, a, a portal of sorts, perhaps. It is a, um, it is a, it is a window into the after. Uh, observe. And they gesture at the tapestry uh, for all of your eyes to fall upon. This isn't just a beautiful story and a tapestry telling of what happened in the First Stranger War. This is also a message and a spell. Now, both of these things are very well concealed. Uh, and frankly, I don't think anything short of an analysis of, well, my caliber uh, could have deduced that. Uh, but this is, this is, this is magic. This is a spell. Quite a powerful one, too. Uh, allow me to reveal it. And Dr. Oluso sweeps an arm over the space atop the tapestry, and this bright blue light starts glowing over specific threads until all of you see a second story interwoven through the main one, sort of hidden by clever threadwork and magic, kind of like an optical illusion. Like you weren't able to see it in that perspective until Dr. Oluso pointed it out. And this second story depicts a star at the center of that circle. And surrounding that star are thick black threads of empty void, like a plate of just oblivion. But pushing that void back, you see symbolic depictions of hands, many hands, lifting up that star, opening it up to become bigger and bigger and bigger. Right. Yes, so, an interpretation. Uh, this message, I am 93% sure, tells us what exactly the cataclysm is, was, will be from their perspective, I suppose. Uh, see here, these black threads around the star eating the light, that's the vanishing, that's the cataclysm, right? Uh, it's the nothing plane. Somehow, during the cataclysm, the nothing plane got pulled around the now, separating our material existence from the after and the beyond, which means the after and the beyond are still out there, they're just on the other side of the nothing plane. It's like we're, um, hmm, it's like we're covered by a sheet, and the other planes can't reach us. 
But that star, in the center of this circle and above our heads, that star is a hole through the sheet. And the spell inside this tapestry, it can, um, hmm. I believe it can pull the after back in through the hole back toward us. Or, uh, we're pushing the never past the after, using that hole as a breakthrough point, same difference. What really matters is, I think we can bring the after back using the spell inside this tapestry. I, I don't think the spell can quite reach the beyond. I don't think it's powerful enough. That's where the influence of this magic ends, but still the after can return. Most of the stars will come back. The cataclysm will kind of begin to end. As a storyteller and weaver of tales and is from Morose, looking at this story, second story that the doctor has showcased, will Vasca come to that same conclusion? Like just seeing like the interpretations of the thread within it? Yeah, why don't you roll history with advantage? Sure, that is a plus 14. That's a 19. And a 13, so 19 plus 14. 33? Three, yep. <laughs> Dr. Elusa's. Jesus fuck. Dr. Elusa's analysis is spot on. Couldn't have said it better yourself. You're right. That is. I think. I do agree with you, Doctor. We could do it. We could. Well. Shuhei had us contained on Adolin. The stars were back. The weave was real. We could do it here. We could pull it back. I think we should. Yes, right. Um, so do we need to do it like we did in Jukai? And Sidlali kind of like is shrugging off their bag and like getting ready to get murdered again. Uh <laughs> Oh, oh, no, 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 no. I, I don't think that would be necessary. Nothing here says anything about a sacrifice or souls, you know, being consecrated to the after in any way. Uh, but there are there are two conditions, I think, for the spell to work. Uh, the first one is pretty simple. We already have it fulfilled, really. Uh, the light of that star must fall upon this tapestry directly. The tapestry is a conduit for the spell to work. We, we need it. Uh, the second condition is a little more complicated. See all these hands depicted symbolically upon the tapestry. More than eight, so many, pushing back the nothing plane, you, you see them? I think this means the Paragons can't do this alone. You need help. If we want to bring back the after, we all have to pitch in, each of us. And Dr. Luso is addressing the eight of you and everyone else around as well, like Kane, Halo, etc. What do we need to do? And Dr. Aluso's gaze falls on all of you. And I like to ask each of you the same question, which is, what one action do you take to aid this spell? Oka's going to start by trying to recreate that spell work that they shoved their blood into that Shuhai was using to keep the time loop going to almost destabilize time and space so that the, the magic will be able to work. Kind of like how Kirongbo got sucked through time in a few seconds, basically trying to do something similar. So they're gonna start like going around um, and bloodletting like that same kind of magical ancient sigil that Shuhai was carving in Jukai to the best of their ability. 
Ontological magic. Reality bending spell work, I see. All right. I think that's what you do, Oka. You like nod and how does this manifest around you? It starts with Oka just like starting the blood spell work, like a big circle with enough space for a lot of people to be inside. Um, And they start kind of like herding people to different spaces with where like different sigils would go. I don't think they draw those sigils, but like it starts to almost like the wind blows a little bit slower when you get in there and like time and space feel a little bit heavier and slower inside the sigil before the spell is even active already. I love that. I think we see like blood, rope, and spell work begin to just leash out of Oka and form almost like the foundation or like the base to hold the spell in, where like each different person gets to go to a different area to like sustain their own part of the spell to contribute to it. I really like that. Who's next? I think Jaron, having had this tapestry for so long and having had a chance to go back home and to study like morose and weeping has become, I think, intimately familiar with this tapestry in particular. And now that he has a stronger connection to the weave than he used to as well, I think the way that Jaron helps is he taps into that connection, uh, specifically through thread work, through weaving. And he is essentially, I think, like unraveling the part of the tapestry that has the nothing plane depicted on it, those thick black threads. I think he's like magically like unstitching from this tapestry. Uh, and it's mirrored, I think, in our reality, in the now, that as this tapestry starts to unravel, so does the nothing plane from from the now. Mm, I really like that. I love that. Beautiful. I think we see those like black threads starting to spool off, almost like the surface of the tapestry a little bit as you're like threading your intention into focus, into reality through the weave. Who's next? Uh, uh, Abiku sits wherever she gets her to by Oka. And much as she did before, she digs one hand into the ground and she'll take her bow on the other hand and raise it to the air. And she is unsure if anyone, she can reach anyone, but she's, the war is finally over and she's calling on her ancestors to save, help save Ndake one more time. Mm. Abiku, I think as you like thread your bow and start to like string it and like aim it toward that star, you feel another presence come up next to you as wordlessly Taktoa Kagan also like takes Sunshot off her back, sort of looks at you sideways, nods, and does the same thing, like ready. She like pulls Sunshot back and like aims it up and looks at you, waiting for the trigger word. Who's next? Vaska, I think, just instinctively hearing Dr. Lusso on the same wavelength, understanding exactly what is necessary, the kind of power, the kind of energy that is needed for this, pulls out Parable and begins swinging and dancing. As she will begin using her soul magic to tap into everyone's abilities and energies and amplifying it and the music that plays from parable as she swings and dances all around them is this ignition of percussion that just amps everyone up 
and gets them ready to give their all to bring mm. back the after. I really like that. I think you're causing music to sort of like swirl and thrum and beat around the air around all of your friends. And as Parable swings, I think we actually see Kane step forward and sort of like toss their wavy hair behind their shoulder and they start to join you in a duet. And they are they're a very good dancer. They are like very intuitive. Their movements are sharp and strong, like both like ma like masculine and feminine and something beyond and neither at the same time. And they are so bold as to step between you and Parable. And they like seem to be able to track where you're swinging Parable and they like step over it and then they like move around it. They duck underneath it. They like, you know, move to the side. And like the two of you are join together in this dance. And like their movements are empowering your spell work as well. They're like threading it through with their own bardic magic. So who's next? I hate to be predictable. I hate it. I hate it so much. But if there's anything I'm going to do, I think it's combining uh, sort of gentle's intuitiveness for the world around them. Um, sort of using their energy to make, I think a tea for literally everyone in the circle but one absolutely with sort of the natural energy of the world around them. Sort of, I think, grounding everyone, making everyone sort of feel that extra level of synchronicity um, as they just run through the crowd offering little cups of tea. I love that. I think as you're running around, someone steps gently in your way and it is Duke Sweet Breeze, Root, who sort of like smiles, showing these like gleaming teeth, right? Like his braids sort of falling out of his face and he, offers a hand that's glimmering with druidic magic. May I bless that cup? Uh, abs absolutely. And Root helps by, I think, enchanting your tea with like bolstering energy and magic. Who's next? I think Vasanti sort of steps up to this group that is forming and she instinctively puts up her broken hand to try to cast some magic and then she just feels the weave like cut off near her near her wrist and it's like oh yeah I, like i can't use that arm so she brings up the other arm and you see like she really has to like concentrate a bit harder because she's not used it's like you know it's you work out this hand so much that the other hand doesn't uh isn't as strong but she's focusing and focusing and you see the threads on her face of green and purple um, from where she almost dissolved get glow brighter and brighter as she is going to sort of cast into this space a uh, plane shift but like not in a way to like send us all to another place but just sending that magic into this sphere to help open up this space into the other plane of the after. I love that. And I think as your like unskilled hand, right? Your lesser skilled hand, your less trained hand moves forward and it's sort of like shaking a little bit as you're trying to channel this magic. You feel Rev sort of step up from behind you and she like wordlessly holds your hand and helps to stabilize it and guide it, right? Uh, as she helps you weave plane shift into the reality of Oka's spell work. Who's next? Uh, Dewey has been holding his god jar, his god weapon, Forge, um, and he hasn't used it in quite a while, um, quite a few days. So it's been absorbing starlight from the one star in the sky at night. Um, and he goes, hold on one minute. And he uh, runs about like a hundred feet away and he, um, you see the god jar glow and he like tips it over and like this little piece of metal falls out and he sets it on the ground. And out of that cradle, 
an enormous ball, an enormous crystal ball of sunlight forms. Um, and he summons the spark of Beltanger, uh, which sheds bright light in the vicinity and also draws magic from the weave that can be harnessed for the spell by up to up to eight people. But I assume we will take what we can get. That's freaking amazing. Yeah, this fucking crystal ball of pure daylight you produce from four. Also, it's 50, it's 50 feet wide. <laughs> oh my God. And Dewey's like, nobody touch this. You're going to hurt yourself. Jesus. Okay, yeah. Uh, Dewey, is it okay if like, let's say that this ball can float? I think it'd be cool if it floated above all of you, like a miniature version of Galtanger. And as you like produce it and it starts like glowing, this like bright radiant light empowering all of your magic, you feel someone step up next to you and old mama lightning shakes her like hair out and like sort of like sets her cane down gently, I think uh, next to where she's standing, sort of turns to you with her mismatched eyes and grins and says, you know what's cooler than a ball of sun? Whatever you're about to do, I'm sure. A ball of lightning sun! And she shoots her fingers forward and literal lightning explodes out of her palms and zaps against this ball, this crystal, and starts to make it like spin and whirl. It's just like supercharging, I think, this artifact you've produced and like making it uber uber powerful it's like fire and electricity sparking off of it like a tesla coil and sitlali what action do you take i think sitlali sits where they are directed and i think she focuses on the three times that they've been to the after and what that felt like and what the after is like and how different it is and just kind of like grabs hold of a little almost like a bouquet of weave and focuses on that feeling with like a hand over those marigolds and just kind of like tries to be an anchor mm. and I think the amount of concentration I think they might get a slight nosebleed I really like that and I think Similar to Vasanti, you feel like a stabilizing presence pull up next to you as like blood starts to trickle past your lips and you're just holding your hand out in a clenched fist. You feel every string of the broken weave here connected to your hand as a nexus point, stabilizing everyone else's actions, uh, holding it all together within this web that Oka has created. And you just hear Mercy's voice next to you. So, like, serious. You got this, Sitali. You always have. And I think as like the final action, also stepping into this like blood circle is your mother father, Oka, Emperor Zhen of Xiong, right? She actually produces in a flurry of her long sleeves, omen, uh, her paragon weapon, that magical guqian that just sort of floats in front of her, a zither. And she starts to play music complimenting Vasca's own percussion and Kane's dance perfectly. And Halo splays her hands out, closes her eyes, and begins to sing. Uh, it is in ancient Tu, this language that just like flows out of her throat and weaves around everyone else's actions, helping to tie it all together, suffusing everyone with strength. If it's okay, I think as everyone steps into their piece of the spell work, 
It's almost like we've recreated the circle at the top of at the top of the tapestry. And I think like the halos behind Oka's uh, head, like whirl, whirl, whirl. And then as the last people step into the circle and add their magic in, all of the halos click and time stops around them. That happens. Time freezes. I think we actually see like beyond this circle, like a butterfly that was flapping by and its wings just stop. But all of you are still moving. All of you are still spinning the spell into existence, calling, singing, dancing, praying, pleading, asking for the after to return. And basked in the light of that single star above your heads, the threads on this tapestry begin to glow. Bright, bright, bright like incandescent molten lava, like a sunbeam, like frost, like the stinging wound of life, like the whirling matrix of time, the light above the weft work thickens. Wind whips all around you, timeless dust swirls, a massive magnetic sensation rips through your souls, not painful, but breathless and divine. And then, boom! A pillar of radiance explodes toward the sky, punching out of the tapestry. And from a distance, we see this shaft like a finger of a god curling upward toward that star. The pillar of this light hits it, and the horizon above your heads ripples like a pebble dropped into a lake, like a lover's scarf unfurling in the wind. Waves of magic undulate. And then a second star appears. And then a third. And then a fourth. A fifth. A tenth. A hundredth. Radiant, blooming, growing, spackling outward from the first like flecks of paint from a brush. That magnetic sensation vibrates through the air as the after reconnects with the now. For an infinity that is also just a heartbeat, time hangs still as stars spackle the sky in every direction. And then there is a noise, like a joyous dam breaking. As time around all of you starts to speed up, we see those butterfly wings flap, 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 and like resume back to normal time as every single person in Andake reacts. You all hear screaming, cheering, sobbing, Crying, laughing, applause, fireworks exploding on the near horizon, music, singing, stomping, chanting, yelling, every noise available in the repertoire of personhood. The stars are back. The stars are back. Not all of them. The constellations of the eight are still gone. The beyond is still past our reach. But as that pillar of light dies down and the tapestry starts to crumble into dust, consumed by the power of this spell, 
and this pressure subsides all around you and the soldiers and the people and the alliance and the everyone start rejoicing it is infectious it feels like a victory because it is and I want to know how each of you is responding as your magic starts to be consumed by the spell. We see that massive glowing sparking ball of radiance also wither up toward that star and get devoured and embraced and loved by the after drifting back toward the now. How are each of you responding? I look at Taktoa and I just say, it's beautiful, isn't it? And she like lowers her bow after having like shot that message up toward the after alongside you. Yeah. And she looks down at you. I think your skin radiant under the glow of a million stars overhead. Yeah, it is. Who's next? I think I looked towards Bud, who was a baby a year ago. And I point out, I think, some of my favorite stars that I used to look at a lot when I was younger. And I just show them to him. What? This? This is what? This is what it used to look like? But that's... It's so bright! And it's so... What? Wow. Okay. Take your time. You'll get used to it. That one, that one's, uh, what did you call it? That one's Looper Cow, right? Yeah. <laughs> wow. And you just see Bud's tail just whipping and wagging uncontrollably behind him as he's just looking like, we see the stars reflected in his huge black glistening eyes. His like nose just going and sniffing. And you hear Root <laughs> chuckle next to you and fold his arms over his chest, watching the two of you bond. Who's next? I think uh, Vasanti is feeling sort of her magic, you know, revving back down. And she's so genuinely surprised. She genuinely didn't think that she would see the stars again in her lifetime. That she is overcome with tears. And she just like this smile from ear to ear erupts on her face. And then she looks over to Rev real quick and just like with no warning whatsoever, leans over and just lays a big kiss on Rev and just spends the rest of the time just sort of like nestled in Rev, looking at the stars and just like crying a happy cry. I don't think the two of you even say anything to each other. Rev kisses you back immediately. She's also crying silently. She's just laughing and crying and she holds you like tight in her arms as the two of you just stargaze. Who's next? Um, do we grabs the person closest to him, which I think is Obama Lightning. Uh, and he grabs her by the waist and like jumps up and down. And this is before she's even like finished casting her spells. So he gets like <laughs> uh, charged up with static electricity and all of his feathers go poof. Uh, and he's like jumping up and down. She's jumping up and down with you, like <laughs> joining your enthusiasm for like an older woman. She has a lot of energy and seems to be like full of it. And like, she's like making you puffier and puffier and puffier as the two of you jump up and down and like hold each other. They're back. They're back, Dewey, they're back. It. We did it, we did it. And then he realizes, oh, I've never met this woman before. And he's just like, um, and let's go and smooths down his feathers. <laughs> <laughs> Good work, well done. 
Well done to you, kid! As she claps you on the back with surprising, bracing strength. Who do we pan to next? Vasquez is quiet as she supports her lower back with her left hand and twirling parable in her right as she looks up, hiding away her tears. I hope you find your way home. And Kane, I think you have that... (laughs) You have that really like solemn, beautiful moment with yourself looking up at all these stars, and then you're hit from the side by like a bundle of midnight blue as Kane just hugs you. Oh. <laughs> wow, you are a fantastic dancer, might I say. I might say the same thing about you. Who knew that the champion of Naval had such skill? Well, yes, my dancing used to be deadly. I've learned not to kill people with it, uh, but <laughs> the stars are back. I never thought I'd see the day. I mean, obviously, I believe in the Paragons, including you, uh, but uh, it's all up against a stranger. I mean, come on, the odds are a little. But this, <laughs> this is hope. You know, yes. I hadn't felt it since I met Oka, and I feel it again. Don't lose it. We can win this. And Kane like looks at you with like a new kind of light in their eyes, and they nod. Who's next? I think Jaron, seeing the stars come back, is first distracted by it all. Like, he can't tear his eyes away from this light that hasn't been in our world for the better part of a year. And then when they finally look back down, I think their eyes immediately fall on Oka first. And they don't waste a moment. They run over to Oka, like, grab them, and I think just kiss them. Long and deep, like, like it's maybe going to be the last time that they get to. Oka kisses you back. And I think when they pull away, finally, after a long moment, I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving you alone here. What do you mean? I can't. Oblivion is its own form of stagnation and I can't. I can't leave anymore. I don't want to. I'm not going to. I promise. Stars kiss me? Dreams leave me. Never. And I think Jaron goes in for another kiss. And I think on that we cut over to Sitlali. Sitlali stares at the stars. Let's go of the weave. Let's out a breath that they have been holding. And cast sending. Leaf is over there, safe and sound. Misses you, I think. Rev, while holding Vasanti, looks up suddenly and turns in your direction, Sivali, having received that message. And you see something flicker across her golden and black gaze. But before that resolves, we're going to cut back to Oka. Oh, gay part two. Uh, Oka, I think, like, twirls Jaron out into Kane's arms, right? And they, like, take, 
like two huge beats of their wings and they do like an arc up and over, right? Just because they want to get just a little closer, just a little closer to the stars. And they land in front of Dr. Eluso, pick them up so that both of them hover just a few inches off the ground and they kiss them. Kane screams when they see this happen. <laughs> I, I knew it. Yes, I yes, I knew it. <gasps> and like they're just sort of like laughing and giggling and leaning into you, Jaron. Yes, darling, this wasn't a surprise. I, I thought I told you this when I came to visit you in Naval. But they've never kissed before, Jaron. A crush is different from a confirmed... Oh, gods. Well, you wouldn't know that. You're not from the nation of love. And we cut back to Rev, who finally breaks away from Sitlali's gaze, squeezes Vasanti once reassuringly uh, as she lets go, as if to tell her, like, I'm not leaving you, I just need to do something momentarily. And Rev steps forward in the midst of all this celebration, of all the fireworks going off from, like, the war camp and from the people participating in the Great Pilgrimage beyond the Euclid Chasm. There's, like, people are already celebrating. Like, this is, like, a sec- This is, like, actual Adolin. And amidst all of this, Rev steps forward. She holds out her arm, and ribboning into existence, we see Grim flashing in her hand. Its silver blade, bright and shining and glinting under the light of a million stars. <sighs> she takes in one deep breath, the feathered pauldrons on her shoulders shaking. Then she exhales, holding Grim out like a prayer. She closes her eyes, and her cape behind her starts to rise up and ripple as magic begins to flurry around the paragon of the Raven Queen. A shine flashes across that blade, and curling off its steel surface like smoke, rising up toward the after, is every single soul Rev has reaped in the banishing. We see dozens at first, and then hundreds, and then thousands of souls lifelike, as big as they were when they were alive, swirling up into the air, headed up, up, up toward that ethereal plane, toward that after. And amongst these souls, ballooning out of Rev in a brilliant bonfire of mist, several look familiar. One of them is a feeless man, black-furred, sharp-clawed, a prosthetic tail curving behind him. Bloodthirst looks askance once in Cain's direction as Cain freezes with Jaron in their arms before Bloodthirst vanishes toward the stars. Another familiar soul is a white dragonborn man in a pristine suit and tie, a golden tooth flashing. And Sievert turns and only has eyes for Vasanti reaches out towards you, grasping through inches of space, but also millions of light years of distance, and then disappears. We also see Tamba 
that half-elf woman in her full draconic mage form, a long, copper-scaled dragon that dwarfs the other souls around her with eight sets of wings down her spine, thick tufts of black fur protruding from her chest. She snakes up, 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 swimming toward the sky and goes. And next, we see Ravi, a hobgoblin woman with dark hair cropped by her chin. She's wearing armor. Her crimson skin is crisscrossed with lightning scars. Her gaze lingers on you, Oka, once, and then falls past you onto Mercy, whose eyes are brimming with tears as she's looking up at Ravi. And before Ravi also vanishes, she actually drifts down toward Mercy, cups a hand behind her head, and they touch foreheads together one last time. We also see Tyrion. He appears as a long, powerful, alabaster-scaled draconic mage even bigger than Tomba was. Sharp claws flexed, he is impossible to miss. As he spirals and swims up toward the sky, he cocks his head to one side in Vasanti's direction. The look in his sharp, piercing, cold blue eyes unreadable before he too disappears. And finally, we see a blue-skinned triton woman with a strong face, a sharp jaw, handsome pearlescent horns, long kelp green hair spills past her shoulders and she holds a golden trident in one hand. She twists in midair, her gaze searching, searching, searching until it lands on Vasca. I think Vasca is shocked. She did not know where Atalanta was. Now she's there. And I think like Vasca like steps forward, like trying to inch ever closer, her arms reaching out, her scales are standing on end. She's reaching out to her. Oka, you look like there's something you want to do. So I'm a really powerful necromancer, right? And kind of also a time wizard. Okay. I want to hold her there for 30 seconds. As I think Oka inhales and at the top of their breath, they're going to try to slow everything down again. So it'll hold until they need to take another breath so they can have a last dance. By the power of gay, I will allow it. Oka, you inhale and you hold that breath in your lungs. And only for Vasca and Atalanta does time feel like normal. But around that bubble of just the two of you, it feels like time slows down because it does. Vasca runs to Atalanta and reaches out to her. Atalanta reaches out as well. I found you. I found you. Vasca. And her voice sounds so far away, like it's at the bottom of a well, echoing up toward you. And when you try to get to her, your your corporeal form slides past her like she's a ghost. Because she is. You can't touch. <laughs> I can't even touch you. <laughs> and just kind of like hovers her hand over Atalanta's. 
I never thought I would see you again. Darling. My great. And her hand slides through your hand up toward your chin. And though you know her fingers will move through you, she's trying to like cup your chin up to look at her. Don't cry. We'll see each other again soon. I know we will. Wait for me. I'll be there. I will wait for as long as it takes. A thousand years, 10,000, and infinity. And I think like Vosca hovers her hand over, over Alance's hand, her tears already kind of frozen into marks of ice upon her face and hums their song, the song she sang when they first met in that forest. As you hum, Atalanta's transparent hands cup you at the waist, at the cheek, and she starts to dance with you in a slow, swaying duet. And that moment holds for you, Vasca, for a lifetime. And then Oka takes in another breath, releases, and time also is freed. The present catches up, Atalanta starts to disappear. And the last thing you hear and you sense from her are the words, I love you. I love you. And Vasca will turn to Oka. Thank you, my wolf. Nuka just kind of nods and daubs away a thick nosebleed that's starting to run down their face. The last of the souls disappear up into the skyline. We pan up toward that starry night sky, shot through with cosmic dust, pinpricks of stars all over the place, millions and millions of glowing motes of hope. And when we pan back down, the party is in full swing. Now that the after is back, my friends, how do each of you spend the rest of the night? Um, I think Vasante, during all of that, uh, she, when Sievert comes up and she sees Sievert, uh, there's an, she's doing a lot of crying tonight. She, she, she starts crying again, but like for as much as she hated Sievert for the last seven years, there's that much love knowing everything he did for her, her entire life unbeknownst to her. Um, and then when she sees Tyrion, um, she, even though she's surrounded by hundreds of people in all directions, it is as though she is completely alone. Everyone just fades away in her existence. And I think she makes a face that when Rev is done, she probably turns and sees this face on, on Vasanti. That probably the only other time anyone who's ever seen this would probably be when when Sievert was standing over Vasanti when she was dangling off that legend of that trap when they were trying to do that last con. That like, that hurt and just not understanding how this person could do this to her. And I think just Vasanti starts leaning backwards and, and Rev's just like the last thing is just watching Vasanti in this very disappointed slump just like loses herself into the crowd and works towards Dr. O's house. Do you like hide away in the cottage for the rest of the night? 
Yeah, I think so. I think if anyone wants to see Vasanti, she's going to be in there alone. I think Rev is definitely going to run after you and try to talk to you. I think before Vasanti reaches the cottage, she turns around and says, I asked you and scream so that everyone can hear this. I asked you for one thing before I before I passed out after I killed him was to not take his soul with you. I had one request and you broke that. You broke it. And then you just hear like, stay away from me. And Vasanti like whips around and run, walks away in a very angry march. Okay. And I think all of you hear Rev say before you like stride away from her, Vasanti, please, I, you know, I could never have done that. And you storm off. And I think that's Vasanti's night. I think the rest of you could like try to check in on her, but like from her end, that's, that's what she does. And Rev respects her wishes, leaves you alone, but is like nervously orbiting the porch and like checking with every person that tries to go to talk to Vasanti, right? Like trying to ask them to like bring her a message from her. All right, who's next? I think that happens and you see Biku in a corner uh, talking to Sitwali, like pulling her chunks in like watches and is like, you hear like something, something's like, I'm Rev's keeper, I think. I, should I go like talk to her? <laughs> uh, are, are you Rev's keeper or are you the Raven Queen's keeper? Cause I'm still trying to figure that out too. If like, am I Oka's keeper? Or am I Sin's keeper? Like how does, what is he's, the balance there? Like, oh, she has the God Shard. I should make sure she's okay, I think. <laughs> yeah, probably. Should I, I mean, Oka's fine. I mean, I don't, yeah. I guess I should see if they meet. What even, did they tell you what Keeper meant before you said yes? Because like Sen and I didn't really get to talk about it. It just sort of happened. Yeah, I think, I think this is this kind of back and forth. Like, yeah. are there, is there a benefits package? <laughs> I felt under duress, like that kind of like. <laughs> yeah. Wait, I love that. Speaking of a benefits package, I want to know what Gentle's doing. I hate that we have the same brain there. Um. Gentle is uh, talking to Mercy. I think Gentle is holding like two little pamphlets and like maybe a crudely drawn like note with ideas um, of just like, so after we save Indake, I was thinking about maybe uh, going off on my own to start this thing called the Gentle Wolves um, because I, I really like what we do here, but I do want to be able to I think keep helping in a way that doesn't involve fighting monsters. And I do have a second lined up. Um, it's Jaron. What? What? Whoa! Gentle, you know the Hounds of Mercy's trademarked, right? So the Gentle Wolves? That's Mercy, Gentle, Hounds, Wolves. That's a little, you know, kind of stepping on my toes here. I mean, gentle? But it's a different, it's a different, we're, we're not competing in the same type of area. I, I don't want to fight monsters anymore. I like doing kind of what we did in Dabathati. Like, what, your charity work? Yeah. So I you're like starting up a people. nonprofit. Yeah, I mean, you weren't necessarily the best at paying us anyway. At least you didn't buy these three fucking tongues. Are you kidding me? What, what is this? And like, Mercy grabs one of the pamphlets. Gadental? And vision? Are you kidding me? You know how expensive that's gonna be? 
Yeah, but it's worth it because we want to be able to help everybody. And that includes the people doing the helping. <sighs> and like, I think like the rest of the conversation is Mercy surprisingly like, <sighs> like the anger sloughs off her and she just kind of actually like, <laughs> claps a hand on your shoulder and nods. First of all, when she realizes you're not in direct competition with her. Uh, and second of all, when she's like, you know, she like nods and she starts talking you through it and giving you unsolicited advice about like how to exploit your workers <laughs> um, <laughs> under the gentle wolves. And we're going to cut to a different part of the party where we find Sitlali. Yeah, I think Sitlali wanders their way over to Vasca at some point. Vasca just got out of Dr. Luce's house getting changed into a different set of clothing. And it is a basically the reverse of her previous clothes. It is gold with black accents instead this time. And it has like a little like chest window almost like with a deep cut V where you can see Vasca's top surgery scars. Uh, and she like finally steps out like clearing her face and her hair is clearly still wet from whatever she whatever like face washing she just did and she's kind of sees you um Salali you remember that uh conversation we began on the way back from Jukai yes yes did you perhaps we better talk inside then perhaps not so close to their homestead a field lead the way and I think they begin to lead Vasca off somewhere a uh, little Maybe by the less... by the chickens? Yeah. Okay. Well, no, Squeak yeah. might be there. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Maybe by, like, the fallow training field, which, sure. compared to the rest of the military camp's training fields, is rather small uh, and, like, un- underutilized. So I think there we find Vasca and Sitlali talking to each other in kind of, like, hushed tones away from everyone else. And, like, what kinds of, like, looks do we see transpire across your faces? There is no trust. The work never stops. Sitlali is a suspicious bitch. Like, Sitlali doesn't know how to take a break. Sitlali's tired. Sitlali has done some math and has several theories that they share with Vasca about the good doctor, um, particularly in light of a certain battle where a certain doctor took a certain zero amount of damage. Uh, so, yeah. I think Vasca's face is that of back to that cold neutrality of hearing all of this and weighing it very, very balanced and not dismissing but not wholly like taking on all the theories either because there's clearly we're missing something and I think that's what she communicates to Sitlali is that whatever thing is missing unfortunately in this circumstance can make or break whatever suspicions that Sitlali has and that could be the crux of this whole thing and that should be their next focus is to determine what is going on truly Mm. And I think on that, like, we cut away from that scene of the two of you just, like, silhouetted in that field under the light of the stars, Vasca being level-headed, Sitlali being like, what about this? Or this? Or this? But, like, exhausted and so full of all these secrets that they haven't told anyone until now. And now we cut over to Dewey. Um, I think that Dewey has pulled Jaron aside uh, and is like, how's the hitman doing? What happened to... 
about that. Uh, and Jaron kind of, sh- you see that two of the fingers on Jaron's prosthetic have been like very crudely uh, fixed. Like it's very clearly not the original workmanship and Jaron did their best in trying to replace the two fingers that were lost. What happened to my beautiful work? There were surveillance rings and uh, they were also teleportation rings. Um, don't stick your fingers in them, is no, what I've learned. I, I wasn't going to. Jaron, I was going to entrust you. I was going to entrust you. You know, Basanti's hand also got fucked up. I was going to entrust you to take charge on that project, on the hand what? rebuilding project, but what? But now. No, I still can. No, I still can do it. You can still trust me with that. I swear, I've been doing so much good work. Did you see what I made for Gentle? No. I got them these really cool earplugs that uh, filter sound so that it's less sensory overload for them. I've been practicing. Okay. And I actually have some really cool ideas. Uh, Hey, Jaron, before you get a little too ahead of yourself. And Rev actually steps up like off the porch of the cottage and approaches you, Jaron, and you, Dewey, and basically kind of almost sheepishly asks the two of you to go in and talk to Visanti and maybe like take a look at her hand because she's not talking to her. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure that uh, she'll be willing to talk to us. Maybe. You want to fill us in on what happened between the two of you or are we just doing a little check on... (sighs) Listen, I'm the paragon of the Raven Queen, which means people can die, people can live, but what's not right is desecrating their souls to nothingness. And I think on that, Rev explains everything. She explains Tyrion. She explains the oath Visanti tried to make her swear. She explains what she did instead. And this all spirals toward the argument, right? And she gestures for the two of you to, like, talk to Visanti and maybe try to get her hand fixed in some way. And I think we see uh, Dewey and Sharon like, probably very sheepishly, very tentatively entering this cottage that Visanti has squirreled herself away into. Uh... Hey, Paragon, how's it going? I think they walk in. I think at the fireplace that, like, Vasanti just loves this fireplace. Is she's sort of made a little home for herself. Her her explorer's pack is like dumped over, just everything all over the place, and she's clearly been she has been crying, but she seems to have reached just a place of numbness. Uh, so she sort of like looks over and acknowledges and. Isn't like, oh, yay, uh, that was a funny joke, Jerome, but is also not giving you the vibes to go away. And then I think, um, I think Vasanti sort of like reaches over with her hand that's still on a cast and she just like starts explaining that like she's so frustrated that she can't even get her hand to work right anymore. And, you know, she just sort of like, you know, goes on this diatribe of just like wanting her hand fixed. Yeah, and I think John just kind of like we see uh, him like pull out like a journal and just like start writing down like ideas and stuff. Um, maybe like sketching out some blueprints. Yeah, I think the door closes as Dewey and Jaron tentatively sit down uh, next to Santi. Nice. And I think on like the front door of the cottage, like clicking shut. Finally, we pan back over to Oka. I think intermittently through the night, we see Oka in a variety of places. They're kind of everywhere at once. 
They go over and they wish Abiku a happy birthday. Kind of uh, softly, they hand her, I think, a mouse skeleton that will do a little dance on its own. Um, and they say something kind of awkward about, like, uh, you know, like a cool undead birthday gift. Uh, and then they walk away as fast as they can. Uh, we see Oka, I think, come up on the scene with Vasca and Sitlali, kind of almost interrupting it, uh, to tell Vasca that their <clears throat> secret <clears throat> performance uh, will be starting soon. Uh, but before that, I think we also see them kind of like dutifully following Halo around, right? Like, as Halo's going around the party, like, Oka's just kind of, like, trailing her for a little while. We see them, like, exchanging a few words with pretty much everyone are talking quietly and nodding with Rev, you know, they also go inside the house for a little while. Um, but then I think it's probably time for their for their little um, <clears throat> birthday performance. I think Oka might be wielding a weapon, and Vasca is got her flute by her lips and I think the performance starts with them on like opposite cor opposite corners of the dance and they just move closer and closer until they're mirroring each other's uh, movements like a duel and Vasca has to like dodge Oka at just the right moments to feel like she's weaving around them and I think Dewey is our musical accompaniment. Yes. Vasca, Vasca did teach Dewey a little bit of zither, but I think Vasca's recorded like a backing track, so Dewey just has to do like the like the tri uh, triangle oh in an God. orchestra performance. <laughs> I love it's that. It's definitely offbeat, like more than once, I think, oh, too, yeah. somehow. I'm into it so much. I think Kane's tail flicks every time it's offbeat and like silences it and then holds the note and then like makes it go on beat because they cannot suffer through a bad dance show. They will not. <laughs> they will not do that. Uh, and I think if it's okay with you all, like this, I think dance performance is sort of right at the stroke of midnight. It's like right before, you know, like close to it. It's like 1150 or something. And like everyone has congregated in this space that used to be the table with the tapestry, but it's now like a little dance area. And Abiku, the birthday girl, I think Dr. Aluso and Squeak have insisted on like giving you like a little special seat of honor because Adolin is not just Adolin, it's also your birthday. And this dance goes off and I think it finishes and all the gathered soldiers and nobles and like top talent of the Alliance like clap and they laugh and they cheer right as the uh, dance comes to an end and then i think we've got like a few strokes till midnight we've got like minutes until it's happening and i think all eyes actually turn toward the birthday girl and you don't know who starts it but there's a stray toast and then other people start chiming in toast 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 like all prompting you to give a toast I do not want indeed bread, but I can say a few words. Everyone laughs. Um, they think you're making a charming joke. Kind of looks at Vasca like, everyone is here, so it, it makes sense. Um, my life has been very long and mostly doing war. All the time has actually been doing war, actually, since I was born. But... The first time I met most of you, it was very angry. It did not seem like you all were friends, but I am glad that this time it seems like you all are friends. Um, 
I don't know what will happen with the stranger or Andake or the thing at the bottom of the chasm, but I there is something my wife used to say to me when we were trying to stop the war. Well, not my my war, the Thousand Year War. Um, and that was as long as we are unified, we have already won, and I think that is what we need going into the next year. I think there's like some applause and hear hears, right? But then, like amid the applause, someone just sort of shouts out, oh, "What? What was that? It's mercy. What was that thing about the chasm? Can we backtrack? What, what do you mean the thing at the bottom of the chasm?" Oh, when we were in the chasm going to Chol, um, there was a. Uh, Something there that's so old, I don't, I don't even remembering everything that I know from 10,000 years ago, I didn't, I don't know what it could be. Uh, what do you, what did you sense exactly? And this is Dr. Eluso talking to you. Because I've, I've said this several times before, I have, I have long since had my suspicions about the chasm, so what exactly, what information exactly do you hold, Abiku? Um, some, this, it was something... What did these seeds say? These seeds said it was something older than Endake. I, I'm not sure what that means, but it is weird because I definitely died at Tyrion's... Well, the fortress that Tyrion stole from my people, I got stabbed in the back doing a battle. But then my body, I woke up in the chasm and I was like, why could that be? But now there's something at the bottom of the chasm. You are all looking like that is something important. Abiku. You are interrupted. <laughs> you are interrupted by a beam of a light shooting skyward from the southern horizon. It is hundreds, no, thousands of miles away across the southern Hema Sea, and yet you see it here from the chasm. That's how bright it is. All of you see it now. A thin pillar of crimson radiance exploding upward into the sky. And where this beam connects with the newly starry atmosphere, red begins to spread like blood across linen. The southern horizon begins to glow a sickly, dull crimson. And all the paragons in this space, as you watch that crimson beginning to eke its way with impossible rapidity across the sky, it feels like a nightmare coming true. And in that heartbeat of horror that clenches the camp tight in its grasp, Princess Kakoa, amidst the silence, stands and whispers, the URL. And in that exact moment, the earth begins to shake. It is sudden. It is violent. It is destructive. It feels like there's something in the ground, deep, deep, deep beneath your feet, hungry to explode outward, and it's radiating. There's no doubt about it, emanating from within the chasm behind the homestead. Cracks 
splinter the earth. Structures around you begin to collapse. Shingles rain from the roof of Dr. Eluso's cottage. The red on the southern horizon continues to expand and spread, metastasizing. It's happening. She's coming. How do each of you react in that moment? And where do each of you go? To the dais, Tordu Hanahi, or toward the chasm? And why? Let's start with Abiku. Uh, Abiku shouts, remember what I said, and jumps as Sun whips into existence to now a large drake uh, and flies towards the chasm because she's connected with whatever's down there or with something that knows it's down there um and she woke up there so it feels like that's where she's supposed to go abiku turns sun ribbons into existence a full obsidian drake now not just skeletal and the two of them like cut through the crowd and like beat it toward the chasm and chaos Structured chaos begins to descend upon the homestead. There have been like emergency drills, definitely, like run by all the leaders of the camp here. They've prepared for every eventuality. And even as people start to scream from beyond the camp, you all hear Taktoakagan immediately beginning to bark orders. You all hear like the strings of omen being plucked and like calming waves of magic sweeping over the gathered people. People begin to scatter and go. It is bedlam regardless of the organization. Vasca, how do you react? Where do you go? Vasca sees her dear friend leap into the chasm and grabs Costas by the waist and goes, Strike Team A, and will start running and um, whipping Parable, launching it onto a uh, side branch that's dangling off of the chasm and rappled down with uh, Costas and just start rappling down. Costas is screaming at the top of their lungs. They have no idea what the fuck is happening. Uh, and we just hear their scream like, oh, like disappear underneath the lip of the chasm as Vasca just vanishes into the dark. Sitlali, where do you go? To the dais, because if the URL is involved and if she really is coming, that means a certain former Imago must be there. But before she starts to climb the dais, I think she grabs onto Gentle's hand. And I don't think there's enough time for them to exchange words, but there's a look and there's enough in that look. And then she goes. Speaking of which, Gentle, do you follow? I don't. Uh, I think I, I climb on Bud and we head towards the chasm. I, I worry deeply, I think, about Abiko. Uh, I worry about Costas. I've forgotten to know them a bit more, but also this is connected to Dr. O, and I know that if, like, Dr. O's okay, I think a lot of things will be okay. Mm. So... I think, if I may, as you hop on Bud and start to jet toward the chasm, all these reasons flitting past your eyes, you also feel that same tugging at your soul. That thread that had led you to the star, led you to the tapestry, brought you toward Dr. O's expertise. It now seems to tug at you from Vasca? Or rather, something within Vasca. As Bud leaps past the chasm and delves into the darkness as well. One thing before... I think I leap 
I give Jaron a look. And I just like shoot a look of like, are you coming with? Gentle, as you turn to shoot a look toward Jaron, I think actually cutting past your gaze, we see someone else making that same decision. Vasanti. I think as this explosion of activity started, uh, Vasanti comes out of the house and she's actually putting something on. Something that Jaron and, and Dewey quickly whipped up in those couple hours. And it's uh, this bracer that goes up and down her left arm. And it looks like dragon scales of black and green scales uh, that goes up and it actually has like a shoulder pad armor that like straps across her chest and everything. And she's like, she's still tightening the straps on her arm of the bracer. And she like looks, all she sees, she didn't see or hear Obiku's speech about the, the chasm. So all she sees is this bright light coming from the direction of the URL. And she just thinks, okay, that's it. That's where I'm going. So she immediately just beelines it to, to the dais and getting ready to cast like teleport. Like she's just ready to go. And as she does that, uh, you see the studs in this armor is actually the, the diamond that was on her chest has been broken up into studs diamond studs that now line up and they start glowing purple that same purple that matches her eyes as then all of a sudden her around her hand instead of like casting with her broken hand this like spectral mage hand of redness uh glows around her hand and explodes into a giant dragon claw very reminiscent of uh taking inspiration from her aunt she learned about from Tyrion. She always, she feels the weave now through this sort of mage hand around her hand. She feels the weave just like whoosh through her entire hand and she's getting ready to cast. You can see the sigils starting to light up as she's like getting ready to go. There's like just a few moments ready for people. Yeah, you see that beam of light coming from the URL. It's time to uh, re-meet Adam again, huh? Uh, so you stride toward that podium where Sitlali's headed toward and I think Rev wordlessly follows you. Like, even though you are having this argument, she is not letting you go alone. And I think we pan over now to Dewey. Dewey steals himself for a moment and then is out the door towards the uh, teleportation, the dais. And his, there's like a, a place to put in the runes uh, on where you're going to go. And he's, his hands are shaking, but it's like muscle memory. He knows the runes to the URL by heart. They're, they're not runes he's done in over a year, uh, but his hands are going over them rapidly. And he's not even looking at it. Um, instead, his eyes go to the red light in the distance and something something about it feels foreboding and almost familiar. Mm. I will get to you in a second, Dewey. Uh, as you run over to the the runes on that dais to try to click them into place, almost like a cipher, uh, into like the correct position for the URL's coordinates, we're gonna pan over to Oka. Oka stares into the sky, wordlessly frozen in motion as I think everything explodes into motion around them. They're stuck there for a moment, like the horrible dream prophet that they are stuck in their own nightmare again. 
and I think it's like Halo's arms that come at their shoulders, like shaking them, shouting something wordless into their face that makes Oka's eyes like focus, uh, both of them like kind of spinning as they like reel and take like three beats up into the air just to get away from this overstimulation, get closer to the stars, get get further from, from something. And they look like as fast as they can, looking around, looking around, looking around, looking around trying to find some semblance of familiarity. They think they see a flash of pastel hair there, but there goes Bud, and, and where's Jerron, and where's Dr. Alusa, where's Kane? Uh, and it's kind of overstimulating, and they get like higher and higher up, and they freeze in the air for a moment before I think they find Dr. Alusa. Where is Dr. Alusa going? Similar to you, there is a split second where Dr. Luso's on the ground, frozen. Um, but un like, unlike the kind of thoughtless, mindless terror, I think that seized you, where you could on you, the only ex feeling that surged through your body was horror, Dr. Luso's face is just calculus. Like they're making, some sort of algorithmic decision is happening behind those eyes as they look at the beam of light, and then they look toward the chasm, and some sort of equation balances out and they turn and move just with no doubt toward the chasm. Oka kind of dives at them in that case. And I think like takes one of their hands to the point where they're both running, but they're both like also floating like a few inches off the ground. Your machine, your machine, come on. I should have planned better for this. I should have, I should have, but yes, no, we'll, we'll talk about that later. Down it is. And the two of you, I think, breach the edge and dip underneath it, which leaves Jerron. I think Jerron sees everybody like immediately like move in different directions and he's pulled in both of them at the same time. They're all making different choices and he almost wishes that everybody would just stay together, would just pick one together. And they look over at Oka running towards the chasm and they haven't been together in so long. And Jerron wants so badly to jump into that crevice with them. But something about, something about Vasanti pulls Jaron. Something in his heart, he knows he has to go and protect Vasanti. No matter how badly they want to go into that chasm with Oka, they can't. And so they turn and they run towards the dais. And I think as they're running is when they catch Gentle's eye, as Gentle gives them that look. And when their eyes meet, Jaron just kind of shakes his head seeing that Gentle is going into the chasm as well. And I think, Gentle, what you see, having known Jaron all of your life, is this deep sadness undercut with anxiety at having to leave you because we have never been apart ever since we were kids. This is literally the first time in our entire lives that we have had to leave each other. And I think that decision breaks Jaron's heart. And I think we see these two best friends, inseparable from childhood, turning away from each other to pursue their own destinies, tugged in diametrically opposed directions, one toward the chasm, one toward the dais. And I think the last image we get, we swing back to Dewey, who you've clicked the final coordinates in place on this platform, roll a D100. But D100, hold up. That one got to all right. 17. 17. 
And as all of your forms upon the dais shoot up toward the sky and you dematerialize on this scene of chaos, screaming, uncertainty, fireworks still going off in abject confusion and fear, this cottage ruptured, tiles collapsing in on itself, empty, bereft of the life that just moments ago it was full of, we're going to close out our Arc 6 interlude. This episode of The Second Stranger was edited by Connie Chong. Transplaner RPG is proudly sponsored by at Dimitri Opines on Twitter and ExplainTrade.com, a negotiation skills training consultancy, because you can't ask to roll persuasion in real life. Check out ExplainTrade.com. Please consider giving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. This helps so much with getting new listeners to find us. New podcast episodes drop every Tuesday. If you can't wait that long, tune into our live stream Saturdays at 7 p.m. U.S. Central Time on Twitch at TransplanarRPG. Also, toss us a follow on Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, and YouTube at TransplanarRPG. We also have a Patreon. Patrons get early access to episodes, character sheets, high-res art, and much, much more. And finally, a very special thank you to our Patreon Paragons. Alex, Brooke Bright, Charles, Chiacres, Cora Eckert, Hat, Conding, Lex Slater, Lyle and Peanut, Purple Mouse, Riley, Scruffisus, and Target.